The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Your Excellency, welcome back to another episode of this History of Christendom series. In our last episode, we discussed the French Revolution and its intellectual underpinnings, so-called. And now we are going to talk about what happened after this explosion, or as you called it, this manure fan hit Europe via Napoleon. And we have something called the Congress of Vienna, which would lead to restorations in France and other places. What happened at the Congress of Vienna? Who was the main architect? And was it ultimately successful? The um, Congress of Vienna was the place where all of the victors over Napoleon came together. That is, the big victors. That would be uh, uh, England, Russia, uh, various other smaller states, uh, Prussia, representatives from everybody that participated in the defeat of Napoleon. And uh, France was there, too, to basically receive all the bad news in the person of Talleyrand, I won't tell you what Napoleon said about Talleyrand, but the architect of it was a certain Austrian by the name of Metternich. And so, of course, the Austrians were there. It was Vienna. They were very influential in in defeating Napoleon as well. They restored all of the old order of monarchs, just as if the revolution had never happened. From the political point of view, they got rid of all the Napoleonic revolutionary systems, etc., political systems, and everything he did, uh, there was a, a real restoration of the original order, and they founded something at the, uh, at the behest of Alexander I of Russia, the Tsar Alexander I, who was a very religious person, uh, something called the Holy Alliance, which was that it was like the NATO of, of the restoration that if ever a revolution should pop up anywhere in Europe, uh, they would all get together and repress it. And uh, that order lasted intact with some difficulty until 1848. Notable, however, in France, even though Louis XVIII, who was the brother of Louis XVI, uh, Louis XVII, well, he, it's disputed whether he died in prison or didn't, but... Uh, he was not around, let's put it that way. Louis the Seventeenth was not around. So Louis XVIII came to power in 1814, and he issued a charter, essentially a constitution. And in it, he said, you know, while we recognize that the Catholic religion is the religion of the majority of the French, that nonetheless there will be religious liberty in France. Pius VII hit the ceiling with that and wrote, him, uh, wrote a letter to a bishop in France uh, telling him how disappointed he was that France would not restore the state of the Catholic Church before the Revolution. Louis XVIII, by the way, was a Freemason. Both of Louis XVI's brothers were Freemasons, and some suggest that Louis himself was, hmm. uh, but it's not certain. Uh, but uh, Louis the, uh, then Charles X, the other brother of 
uh, Louis the Sixteenth became the king of France in around 1820 or so. Again, they were imbued with these ideas. You see, so the France was in a way no better off. It had all of the worst aspects of the Bourbon monarchy and ideas of the revolution floating around in the in the heads of the uh, of these monarchs and aristocrats. Uh, so. You know, France was was not in good condition in that sense. The rest of Europe had, you know, restored everything as some countries were Protestant, like Prussia and all of the others and Austria. But even, you know, before the revolution, Austria was filled with a lot of bad ideas too in the person of Joseph II, who also was a Freemason. Uh, so, uh, and those bad ideas will, will also uh, uh, come to light in 19th century Austria. Uh, so Europe was, uh, let's say, COVID infected. You know, it was. It, it had, uh, you know, thrown Napoleon off. It had thrown the revolution off, but it was infected, and that infection would come out with time. You know, Europe continued, uh, but there was still a lot of. Um, revolutionary thought and revolutionary activity going on underneath those monarchies. Uh, so, for example, the Bourbon monarchy was overthrown in 1830 by a, an insurrection. Uh, it's, just as a footnote, you know, the, the leftists are, are concerned about the January 6th in, insurrection. So-called. They, they, they came to power by insurrection. There were so many insurrections of leftists in the 19th century, you can't count them, uh, of, of you know, uh, attacking palaces and, and all sorts of awful things. Uh, they came to power by that. So Europe uh, was in, maintained that pre-revolutionary order until 1848, when, through a plot of Freemasons that was hatched in Strasbourg, France, where Karl Marx was present, all of the capitals of Europe exploded in revolution. People wanting uh, to, and you know, palaces oh, so you're, were invaded. You're saying it wasn't just a coincidence, Your Excellency. <laughs> Every single major uh, um, capital of Europe, Vienna, almost, almost as if it was coordinated. It was certainly coordinated. Uh, the, the the papal states, Rome, uh, the uh, um, Hungary, I think uh, France, of course, uh, Hungary, uh, Vienna, England was not because England was so liberal at the time that the um, they didn't need a revolution. <laughs> Everyone's just trying to catch up. <laughs> Everyone was trying to catch. They literally they were. They loved England. England is so liberal. You know, we want to be like England. And uh, so they, uh, uh, so England didn't have any revolution. Uh, Spain was was uh, badly affected as well. So I mean, Europe just went up in flames uh, in that year, eighteen forty-eight. And nonetheless, to a great extent, it was a failure in the sense that they did not get what they wanted. Those monarchs continued: Austria, Prussia. France got uh, the Major. Second Republic, but then turned into a monarchy shortly thereafter with Napoleon III. Uh, so Europe was still on that monarchical plan, and again, uh, it, but it was still infected, uh, and they had to make a lot of concessions 
to the, the liberals and to the leftists to keep them happy. And so that was uh, that, that uncomfortable situation between right and left continued until 1914, which of course is World War I, where the whole system collapsed totally. But you still had monarchs in, that had power in Europe. Uh, Napoleon III, uh, the uh, the King of Prussia, later the the, the Kaiser of Germany, uh, the uh, Kaiser of uh, Austria, the Russian Tsar. Uh, they all wielded power. Some of them more limited, some less limited, but they all wielded power. They were the bosses in their country. Uh, so the uh, that that continued until World War One. So in you, you mentioned 1848. Obviously, there are more revolutions in 1848, but 1830, at least in France, produces a degradation of the monarchy to go to the House of Orléans. Yes, and which was a house of rats. So uh, it, if you look at certain... Um, this is one of the things I learned by living in France is that if you look at a... Uh, line of succession that you can tell the persuasion of the person who drew it for you by where the line ends. <laughs> so if you see that Charles X is the last, then you know the persuasion of the person who drew the chart. Yes. And if you see that Louis Philippe is listed as a king, then you know the persuasion of that person as well, yes. which is fascinating just to think if you look at the genealogy that you can understand the temperament that there are many people who think of Charles X as the last king of France. He was crowned at Reims. And then you have the citizen king who goes around in a suit. Yes, and and horribly unpopular too. Uh, it, but it was a it was a republic with a a, a royal figurehead, something like England. Hmm. And um, they didn't call it a republic; it was still the Kingdom of France. But uh, the uh, that's what it was. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, he was the citizen king, as they called him. You know, and and he was the House of Orleans. You have to remember that Louis. Uh, cousin, uh, the Duke of Orleans, uh, named himself uh, Philippe Egalité, Philip Equality, during the French Revolution, and he was the one that called for the head of Louis XVI to be chopped off uh, in, in his trial. So that's the House of Orleans. All right? they, they were terribly jealous of the Bourbon monarchy. They wanted the monarchy. And this uh, creature that became Louis Philippe, was introduced to the crowd by none other than the Marquis de Lafayette, you know, of uh, Yorktown uh, um, fame, uh, who was a Freemason and an atheist. For Americans who don't know their history, the, the park across the street from the White House is called Lafayette Park. Yes. He's a well-known figure, and he was an active participant that he was the, let's say, the, the legitimacy behind that 1830 revolution that he was called on to yes. to uh, confront Charles X who had to flee. Yes, yes. So that gets us to the 1848 revolutions, which again, coincidentally happened in all these different capitals. Just a coincidence, yeah. <laughs> so let's speak, uh, without going into the details of these specific revolutions, I think this is an opportunity for us to speak broadly about Josephism and the Kulturkampf. Oh, Josephism was an 18th century event uh, that was Joseph II, who was emperor of Austria from, um, I'd say, 1780, I'm guessing these dates, 1780 to 1792 or 3, I think he died at that time. So he wasn't there very long, but he was an avid Freemason, 
had, uh, and uh, Freemasons were already in the court of Maria Teresa, his mother, a certain uh, uh, famous one by the name of Kaunitz, uh, who, uh, to whom you could not speak about death. And if somebody died, you would have to say to him, uh, we don't see Mr. So-and-so anymore. And he would respond, well, I will no longer ask for him because he didn't want to hear about death. That was Kaunitz. He was also a Freemason. So Maria Theresa's court was loaded with Freemasonry. So you can see that Europe was badly infected at the time and that there was a lot of, you know, there, there were a lot of rats in the bottom of the hull, mm. you know, and even sometimes on the deck. Uh, they were in the courts. They were in the, the they surrounded the monarch. Uh, Louis XV had a lot of bad advisors around him, the king of, of Spain, the, the, the king of Portugal, Portugal was loaded with Freemasons. I mean, if the Pope were out on his bal balcony and looked toward Spain and Portugal, that was Freemasonry. If he looked toward France, that was loaded with, with trash. If he looked at Austria, there was a, a, an, a Freemasonic monarch. And the, All of the House great, of Savoy. The House of Savoy was a wreck. And then you had the Protestantism. You know, you had Prussia and England, etc. Uh, and... It wasn't a pretty picture at the end of the 18th century. And this Joseph II, they called him Joseph the Sacristan uh, because he would have, make these laws of how many candles you could light for benediction and so forth, uh, all sorts of things that, that he imposed Jansenistic reforms. You see, Jansenism always wants to play down the ceremonies and have everything stripped down because it's Calvinist. And so he, he made those laws. He made the Benedictines operate schools. Instead of contemplating, they had to become active and, and shut down a lot of monasteries, etc. So he was uh, um, you know, a, a thoroughgoing Freemason and egalitarian. He was the brother of Marie Antoinette. And this spirit lasts into, into the 19th century as well. No, Josephism, that, that idea of an interfering with the church, uh, there, was, there was some interference of the Austrian government with the church, but it was not as bad as Josephism. Uh, but there was some. Uh, and uh, finally the church came to terms with, with the Austrian government and depended on, on who was the, the monarch. The monarch was pretty uh, powerful in Austria. You know, when Joseph died, it was, it was substantially better. Next door, we have the rise of Prussia and orchestrated by Bismarck, who also had his issues with the church. <sighs> issues with the church. Well, you had the rise of Prussia. Prussia was a uh, sort of a, a rump kingdom in the 1600s, which gradually rose to, to prominence, especially in the 18th century, and was by the 19th century was bent upon uniting Europe under its control, not Europe, excuse me, Germany under its control. <laughs> well, maybe you're not so off on the Europe yeah, part. Yeah. That comes later. Yeah, that comes later. The uh, Germany was a collection of little princedoms that were per perhaps in certain cases the size of a, a, a county in an American state, you know, just a little princedom. A whole bunch of little little kingdoms or, or you know whatever, uh, and it was a mess. So somebody was going to organize Germany, and it was either going to be Austria or Prussia. So either the Austrian emperor would control Germany, or the king of Prussia would control Germany. That's really the the history of that period in Germany, 
uh, each vying for power in, uh, in, in that land. And uh, Bismarck came to power uh, under uh, da, 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 Kaiser Wilhelm I. Well, he was king of Prussia, wasn't Kaiser. Uh, Wilhelm I. Uh, and uh, he was a Freemason uh, and hated the Catholic Church, tested it. Uh, and uh, he was very, very astute in expanding Prussia by various treaties, etc., where Prussia eventually got control all, over all of northern, northern Germany, except for Hanover, uh, which was uh, controlled by the British monarch. But when Victoria came to power because of the Salic law in Hanover uh, that a woman could not rule, he decided to grab it. And he did. He marched in and grabbed Hanover. And uh, so the Prussia became all of what is now northern Germany. And it also controlled all the way into Lithuania, Kurland, what they call Kurland, and what is now Lithuania. And so all of that Baltic area it controlled. Uh, so it, was, it became a powerful country, and uh, because it was so militaristic, the army was practically a country within Prussia. It was so powerful. And uh, Bismarck had the idea of making Prussia dominate in Germany. And so he did that with, uh, by various means. He maneuvered Napoleon III into a war in 1870. France was, was very prominent in the 19th century under Napoleon III as being rich and powerful and influential by various things that Napoleon III did. And, of course, Bismarck wanted to tear down France's image, so he maneuvered uh, France, uh, Napoleon III, who was a bit of a, um, how would you say, uh, an adventurer and somebody who was emotional and didn't think too much about the consequences of what he did, um, like a loose cannon, you might say. Uh, and Bismarck understood him completely. And because the uh, what happened was that the uh, uh, Spanish monarch uh, was either deposed, there was some vacancy in the Spanish throne, and Spain... Uh, asked that a one of a uh, member of the House of Hohenzollern, which was the house ruling Prussia, become the king of Spain. Well, the French had a fit uh, because then they would have had Hohenzollerns on on their east side and then Hohenzollerns on their uh, the south, and they would be surrounded by these Germanic people and the, these allied forces. So Napoleon the Third. Um, had a fit and complained to Bismarck and by some fluke with a telegram uh, where there was uh, some sort of uh, the, the, the telegram was I think if I recall given to like a, a lowly servant and uh, in response the responding to, to Napoleon III and this was taken as a big insult to Napoleon III. And so he declared war on Prussia as a result of this telegram. You know, and Bismarck just was delighted. The, the Prussian army was all set 
whereas the French army was not prepared to fight. They had let themselves go for a number of years, and so they were just wiped away, uh, you might say, on the battlefield. It took you know a few months, but it wiped away. This is 1870. And the Prussians invaded France and surrounded Paris. Uh, and uh, so... Our Lady has to intervene to, uh, to help out. Yes, that was Our Lady of Pontmain. And they penetrated France as far down as, uh, for example, uh, Nevers, where St. Bernadette was. It was a bad time for France. Uh, and that's where they established at um, uh, Versailles in 1871 the German Empire. And uh, the, the king of Prussia became the German emperor, the Kaiser. Then, after they abandoned France in 1871, and France became a communist, and Paris be- became a communist city for about a few months, uh, and the Paris Commune, 1870-1871, uh, surrounded by Prussian troops always ready to descend upon it. They, the Germans went back to Germany eventually, the commune was overcome by the French, uh, French, the French army that marched on it and executed a lot of people. Uh, and so in, then uh, because uh, Bismarck wanted to do away with the Catholic Church in Germany, he started something called the Kulturkampf, which was in German that, that means uh, <clears throat> the culture war. And so he uh, actually imprisoned bishops and, and suppressed did everything he could to suppress the Catholic Church. Uh, but the Catholics resisted a great deal uh, and uh, the, uh, because there were many parts of Prussia that were Polish. Uh, and uh, so the, um, the Catholics resisted, and eventually Bismarck gave it up uh, around 1878. And so the Catholics again regained freedom in the, Russia, in the German Empire. Uh, the, but there were a lot of Catholic subjects. Uh, but before that, I'm sorry, in the late 1860s, 1866, I think it was, he had a war with Austria that lasted seven weeks in which he defeated Austria uh, and, uh, be- and Prussia became the leading power of the German Reich, the first, what they call the second German Reich, uh, under the Kaiser. Uh, and really has remained the same, you know, same culture uh, uh, ever since. Well, and that, that whole period was just a showcase for that the army. I think they fought the Danes as well. It was just an opportunity to, to roll over everybody who hadn't realized that next door the, the, the Germans had been coming together. Yeah, the, there was a, the Schleswig-Holstein business where there was a, a dispute about uh, uh, who would succeed in that those little provinces to the south of Denmark. And so there was a little war, and they took Schleswig, which was Danish, Holstein, which was German. Germany took both of those. He, you know, he, he just was, he said uh, something to the effect that, uh, how would you say, politics is not accomplished by speeches and legislation, but by uh, iron and blood. It's a, I'm paraphrasing, and it's pretty bad, but that, that, in other words, the only way you're going to get any real politics is by war. Well, I mean, this is a, some similar to von Clausewitz's idea of it's war is diplomacy by other means. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, there's all these effects that happen because of this 1870. So there's so many things you spoke about here. Again, you're, see, I'll try to limit myself. One, 
the seeds of World War One are planted at Versailles by this great insult, the forming of the German Empire in the in the house of uh, of the French monarchy or one of the homes of the French monarchy. As a result, the French troops who are guarding or helping to guard the Papal States have to withdraw, which opens up the Papal States to attack. Yes. As you say, the Paris Commune, which they, the, they finally, the communards have to be poisoned and killed. Mm-hmm. And we get the, the disgusting Third Republic as a successor. Yes. And then a, a new European order with, with Prussia really in charge. So you speak about the end of the Papal States. And then after that, the, what, is, what does the Third Republic mean in relation to what we'd seen before? Well, you had the end of the Papal States. Pius IX had to flee to uh, town Gaeta, which is in the Kingdom of Naples. And uh, Garibaldi came in to Rome, and uh, one of the things he did was spread um, pornography all over Rome. He, he was an animal. Garibaldi was an animal. You know, there was this revolutionary government in Rome, uh, all sorts, you know, nuns raped and all, all the details that you can think of. They, they you know, put horses in St. Peter's Basilica and all of that stuff. Uh, so finally, uh, uh, and that was made possible by the Franco-Prussian War, which I explained, some speculate that the uh, war was uh, uh, one of the motives of Bismarck was precisely to do that, to pull the troops, the French troops, out of Rome in order to shut down the uh, uh, First Vatican Council, uh, the, um, uh, which may well be true. He hated it. He was the one that favored the old Catholics, who were the liberal Catholics at the time, uh, who held their own council in Munich in 1871, calling for married priests and you know, freedom of thought and everything that Vatican II stands for, ultimately. And uh, so uh, he tried to establish them as a counter-church in Germany, uh, but failed. Uh, so that was the Papal States. And then, yes, the Third Republic was born, uh, which destroyed, ultimately, Catholicism in France. It la- lasted from 1871 until 1940, when it collapsed with the Nazi invasion. That was a long time. And it, through the suppression of the religious orders and the uh, removal of the Jesuits, the uh, and overtaking the Catholic schools and making making it impossible practically for Catholic schools to function, uh, it, it destroyed the faith in France. So by 1940, the the faith was very very seriously damaged in France. As a result, uh, they were all leftist Freemasons and and uh, people that you wouldn't want to live next to or have in your living room. Let's put it that way. Well. The, the church now alone with these Masonic takeovers of her former defenders, we have papal infallibility, as you alluded to, with the First Vatican Council. And Quantacura, again, this is not an episode in which we can get too deeply into either Vatican I or, or the Syllabus of Errors, but how, was, how were these um, pronouncements received by the open-minded uh, modern world. Oh, it was darkness and uh, ob- uh, you know, obstruction and it just, it, all sorts of words that came out, you know, that, that this was uh, 
going back to the Middle Ages or, or obscurantism, yeah, obscurantism, uh, everything. It, it was just detestation. Uh, the, the worst possible thing that could ever happen was especially the Quantacore uh, uh, was, was a big shock, but papal infallibility was it was the most anti-liberal thing that happened in the 19th century, and it it just you know blew open everything. So it, it manifested that the church was not going to compromise with the modern world. That was the message that the, the church was against the modern world, and rightly so. The modern world was very, very hostile to anything that the church stood for. Uh, that was the, the line of Pius IX, and it was also of Gregory XVI, uh, also of Leo XII. Uh, and so there was a strong line of opposition to the modern world. When Leo XIII came, it was different. We'll be getting more into the modern world's continuing slide in our, our next episode, which will get us from 1914 to the present day. But for now, as always, Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Not at all. Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.